0: The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 22, The Comanches. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Horswick. Welcome back. I am your host, Sean. Before we get started with the show, as always, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, feel free to sign up for our email list. You can do so by heading over to the show's website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You will also find there the sources um, that I've used to create this episode. And um, if you're into the social media thing, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at AmericanHisCast. Now, before we get into all the juicy details, just a mini update about the show. My goal for a while now has been to have seasons, with each season covering a specific topic and running from the fall through the spring. Thus, June, July, and August would be off time for me to do other things like work on the dissertation, um, write episodes, and, you know, just have a little bit of time doing absolutely nothing. You've probably noticed if you're listening to the show now in March of 2019 when I'm recording this, that the episodes are coming out a little more frequently. I'm working really hard to get them out each week so that season two will end in July. Then I'll take July through September off, ideally, and get started on season three. Hopefully season three will then end in May and we can kind of be on the schedule that I would prefer. I've also decided to do a song of the week, as you might have noticed. Um, This is not really an original idea on my part, but I do like playing a song to kind of signal um, we are traveling back in time, specifically to the time in question. Of course, this would be especially valuable when we do our Vietnam War series, but the problem there is playing pop rock songs from that era, You know, we might run into an issue with regards to copyright and whatnot. I guess that's a problem I'll look into at a later date. But in the meantime, this week's episode is a little bit shorter than usual, um, maybe about 15 minutes or so. But before we get started, let's listen to the song of the week. This week, it is I Am Sitting Sad and Lonely. This is an old one. I don't know the origins of the song, but the recording is from the early 20th century, and I'll see you in just a moment.
1: He has never sent a letter But the last words that he said Oh, my darling, don't forget me
0: So in the early episodes, especially the ones on Texas for this season, I went out of my way to set the stage for the idea that the Comanche played a major role in the war. This episode is going to delve into the role of the Comanches and will be relying mostly on the work of historian Brad DeLay. His book, War of a Thousand Deserts, Indian Raids, and the U.S.-Mexican War is an excellent one. If you want to get the story kind of totally fleshed out, I would highly recommend you get a copy of it. It's not too expensive on Amazon, maybe 20 bucks or something. I figured this episode might be a little bit controversial, as I have a feeling my more patriotic listeners are probably going to take issue with some of what I'll be saying. Um, But please, just hear me out until the very end. Hopefully, if you don't agree with me, at least you'll feel like you've learned something that they never taught in your high school history classes about this topic, and it'll be worth your while. Okay, so first I want to touch upon something which we alluded to, but I don't feel that I developed fully in the Texas shows. And that is the Texas creation myth. The proponents of an independent Texas argued that there was a contract between the colonists and the Mexican government. Americans were invited in to save Texas from the Indians in return for land and the blessings of good government. This is what the myth said. Of course, no such contract existed. Um, Did first the Spanish imperial and then later Mexican authorities hope the Anglos would settle and I guess you could say save Texas – from natives? Sure, I think you could safely say that. But there was no contract, just a hope, a desire. The Texans insisted they had kept up their end of the bargain while Mexico had failed to do just that. They, the Mexicans, had failed to deliver good government. This violation of the compact, again in the Texas creation myth, meant Mexico had lost its right of sovereignty over Texas. So in other words, and as Delay points out, this creation myth was actually justification for the idea of taking Texas from Mexico. More interestingly, at least in my opinion, is that Delay also points out this creation myth works on two different levels. First is the idea of the broken contract that is at a very basic level. That's That operates at a very basic level. Deeper, however, is the more important and far-reaching aspect. And that is – that's implicit to the creation myth is the idea that Mexico had – Broken a contract with Texas itself, with the very land. Mexico failed to subdue the land. They had failed to bring civilization to Texas, and had thus failed Texas itself. Mexico had failed to subdue the Indians. Thus, the Indians were not obstacles or causes of failure, but they were signifiers of failure. Texas was a land of forests and deserts, unsettled not because of the strength of the Indians. It was this way because of the weakness. Uh, first the spanish and then the mexicans thus to take this myth to its natural conclusion anglos had rescued texas and mexico was not robbed or in the words of delay despoiled of anything now did anyone but a few texans buy into this yes indeed they did including americans one example was in the spring of 1836 when both Senator Robert Walker and Representative E.W. Ripley basically argued that American citizens had been invited by Mexico to settle Texas and to save it from the, quote, savages, the native possessors, end quote. Because they, the Anglos, had been successful, they had kept up their end of the bargain. However, Mexico had failed in its obligations. According to the myth, once the Anglo-Americans arrived on the scene, things changed. Again, Ripley said, Immediately upon these events, the savages, the savage roamed no longer in hostile array over the plains of Texas. They were beat back into their own boundaries. As you would expect, once the debate in the United States shifted from recognition of an independent Texas to annexation, so too did the arguments. The idea of a broken covenant receded from the stage, and instead, the focus was now placed on Mexico's failure to civilize Texas. Now the pro-annexation advocates began to argue for the reasons uh, the reasons for Anglo-Americans being in Texas was that they were invited, not for their own interests, but to protect a weak and helpless province from the ravages of wandering tribes of Indians, to improve, cultivate, render productive wild and almost uninhabited wastes, and to make that valuable which was before worthless. This was none other than John C. Calhoun. I'll be mentioning him again as I like a lot of his philosophy on things like states' rights and the war war with Mexico, as you might be surprised on his stance on the war. Now, I don't want to present the American government or the people in an unfair light. First, the creation myth was, while perhaps overly simplistic, essentially correct when it came to the condition of Texas prior to, say, 1821 or so. If you remember back to our Texas episodes, Spanish officials were hoping that by inviting Anglo-American settlers into Texas— they would act not only as a counterbalance to the native population, but they would do for it what they were doing for the Southeast United States. However, and again I'm referring to Brian DeLay's work, Spanish officials were never interested in Texas for the sake of Texas. Sure, the imperial officials would have been quite pleased to see Texas become heavily populated and productive part of New Spain. However, Spanish officials were more realistic in their hopes and really just wanted to establish enough of a presence there to fend off American expansion. Now, the part of the myth that was most, shall we say, egregious was the idea that Texans had been successful in their attempts to, quote, beat back those ferocious barbarians and protect the Spanish citizens, end quote. In reality, the most powerful Indian peoples, the Comanche and the Apaches, were, they occupied regions not settled by Anglo settlers. Remember, Anglos tended to settle, for the most part, the woodlands and bottomlands of East Texas, away from the Bison Range, which is where the Comanches roamed. Americans, We're also somewhat familiar with another Mexican territory, that being New Mexico. Thanks to the overland trade between Missouri and Santa Fe, Americans did visit the region and took back news and information about what was going on there. However, the English language sources of information appear to have exaggerated the security problems New Mexico was facing and failed to mention the fact that New Mexicans, for the most part, enjoyed a fairly profitable relationship with the Comanches. Instead, the problem lay further south, below the Rio Grande, In southern New Mexico, in the late 1830s, the Comanches attacked settlements there, killing about 30 residents and plundering and destroying everything they could. They also were reported to hold a large portion of Chihuahua at this point. Some sources even reported the Comanches raided deep into Mexico as far south as Durango, and even within sight of the capital itself. Thus, Americans saw Mexico as a land under threat by the Comanches, Although Americans did sometimes mention the Apaches, the Navajos, the Utes, or even the Wichitas as raiding and causing troubles for the fledgling nation. Interestingly enough, the Comanches who were raiding northern Mexico were, more often than not, in search of horses and mules, which, if you remember from our earlier Texas episodes, they then sold on the American markets in the southeastern United States. So the Comanches were tied in economically to the economy of the southeast. So, in a strange way, the American economy was encouraging Comanches to raid Mexico. Another aspect to this, one that, while true, might have been exaggerated to some extent, was the fact that the Comanches, besides stealing mules and horses, tended to, quote, make an industry of stealing people, according, once again, to delay. The taking of people was not unique to the Comanche, and while American observers tended to believe these captives were taken for the purpose of turning them into servants, some would have eventually become integrated into the tribe. Now, Americans' views of Mexico and its ability to protect itself from the Comanche were pretty dismal. But the United States itself had, at least since the time of Jefferson, attempted to flatter the Comanches with little success. Remember, the Comanche Empire was quite strong, and the Comanche were renowned horse warriors. If one reads some of the journals of Americans who traveled to the region in the 1840s, uh, memoirs like... Thomas Jefferson Farnham's travels in the great western prairies. You not only feel the vastness of the land, but you feel the presence of the Comanche, even though you never meet them. The thing is, Americans' views on these Indians were often contradictory. On the one hand, they held a great amount of respect for them and their power and fighting ability, while on the other hand, they tended to see the natives as barbarians who had difficulty in wars with the Cherokees and other Indians being removed from inside the United States, many of whom were better armed than the Cherokee, I might add. So here's the important part. The Americans who were familiar with the situation would have looked at the Cherokee in, once again, contradictory terms. Yes, they understood the power of the Comanche. However, because they, the Comanche, had been bested by other Indians, the fact that the Comanche could then give so much trouble to the Mexican nation meant that the Mexican nation, in, again, this crazy logic, was worse than the Indians. DeLay notes there was a saying reprinted in the Arkansas State Gazette that said, quote, one American can whip two Comanches and one Comanche can whip two Mexicans, end quote. Finally, DeLay makes, makes a point to note that the president and his advisors were well aware of the fact that Mexico was embroiled in this war with the Comanche people. Thus, their goal, at least initially, was to limit the war to the northern reaches of the country, effectively imposing one war on top of another, already existing one. So in other words, the United States saw an opportunity, one they hoped to exploit. However, they were not the only ones. Northern Mexicans and independent Indians such as the Navajo, Comanche, and Apache all hoped to do their own exploitation of the situation. The Mexicans in the area hoped that the U.S. Army would protect them from the Indios Barbaros, while, for their part, the natives saw the United States as perhaps a potential ally against their Mexican enemies. If not actual allies, then perhaps the United States would be kind enough to at least draw Mexican attention away from them so they could could then continue raiding and plundering. Of course, all of this did affect the war, to some extent, but, as usual, events on the ground did not quite play out according to expectations. To say that Americans were fascinated by what was going on in Texas and northern Mexico would be an understatement. As they observed Mexico's either inability or unwillingness to protect its northern territories, explanations began to emerge as to why the Comanches were successful and chose the Mexican nation as its victim. By the 1840s, a narrative emerged, and this is what it was. The Comanches might have cared little for the Spaniards, but they feared Americans. Further, the Comanches, who were essentially a nation of robbers, picked the Mexicans as their targets because the Mexicans were more cowardly than even the Comanches. They, the Mexicans, had for many years allowed the Comanches to ravage their country with impunity. The land, the region, it cried out for a savior, and that savior would be the United States. Finally, Mexico was losing to the Comanches because Mexicans were, and I'm quoting DeLay here, in the eyes of Americans, not only cowards, but it was due to, quote, sloth, physical weakness, and stupidity. More holistic thinkers gathered all of these condemnations together under the roof of racial theory, where American perspectives on Mexico's Indian troubles intersected with a fateful realignment in American identity. End quote. By the mid-19th century, most Americans had begun to see themselves as belonging to a separate and superior class of Anglo of the Anglo-Saxon race, whose destiny it was to take ownership of North America from other lesser races. Now, if you want to read more about this. Um, racial theory in the 19th century, I would suggest you read a book by historian Reginald Horseman, entitled Race and Manifest Destiny, Origins of American Racial Anglo-Saxonism. Okay, so I hope this fills in the gaps a little bit. Obviously, it would be impossible to cover every aspect of this in minute detail. I mean, I guess we could, but you would probably lose patience with me, and I, I would lose patience with myself. If you're interested in getting the full story, I would suggest that you start off with Brian DeLay's work, as it's very readable and it's very interesting. You should also find a copy of the Horseman book, as this will give you a much better understanding of the racial ideology that had begun to permeate American society in the 19th century. As always, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to sharing more history goodness with you in the next one. Until next time, I'm your your host, Sean, and I wish you all a great day.